0: Scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, and 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, to the very end of the age. You then, my son, be strong in the Christ that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets untackled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown, except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Annie. Uh, For those of you that have been with us uh, over the last several weeks, uh, really since we began uh, several weeks ago... (laughs) we have been taking a look at who we are as a church. Uh, And over the first couple of weeks, the way we did that was to take a look at our vision statement, uh, which is to know and show the love of Christ. Uh, And then last week, we shifted gears uh, a little bit by looking at how we will go about prayerfully uh, accomplishing that uh, vision by looking at our core values as a church Uh, Last week, we took a look at the core value of personal conversion. Uh, This week, we're going to consider our second core value, which is that of spiritual formation. Uh, And uh, for those, uh, maybe you've been around uh, the church world uh, a while, a similar term might be discipleship. Uh, Let me explain to you what we mean by spiritual formation uh, by just reading for you the actual statements that you can find on our website along with all the other uh, uh, core values But simply this, that we are a church that desires to see people grow in their relationship with God and others through engagement of spiritual practices, relationships, and callings that we might discover how the gospel impacts all areas of life. And today we're going to do something that might be a little unusual for us, but we're going to understand a little bit about this idea of spiritual formation by looking at two passages, uh, those that were just read. First, you have Matthew 28. Matthew 28 which gives us this imperative, this command for spiritual formation. It's really a command of Jesus to be both a disciple of Jesus, but also a discipler. We'll we'll unpack that a little bit. Uh, And then also you have 2 Timothy 2, which gives some really practical realities of what it means to be both a disciple and a discipler. And so to help frame these thoughts, uh, let's just consider a few things together. Today, uh, first, we're going to consider the call of a disciple. Uh, Then we'll look at the cost of the disciple. And finally, uh, the joy of the disciple, all of which will help us understand a bit more what we mean by spiritual formation. So first, the call of a disciple. Uh, Matthew 28 are some of the final words of Jesus. Uh, These were words that he felt were most important to leave with those that had been following him. Uh, Let me reread for you uh, just particularly verses 18 and 19. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, this passage here in Matthew 28 is famously known as the Great Commission, uh, and there's really three major things there that Jesus is calling his disciples uh, to do. He calls them to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach them to obey. Now, if you've been, if you've been with us here at uh, REH for a while, uh, we've considered how this passage has actually been used in incorrect ways over the course of church history. Specifically, too often this passage here in Matthew 28 uh, has been used to essentially truncate the gospel to the gospel solely being about the conversions of people without presenting the gospel as this holistic redemption of the cosmos that everything gets wrapped up in nothing more than conversion. And while conversion is good and right, and we looked at last week, why that is a core value, we believe in personal conversion. The gospel speaks far more than than to just the individual, but impacts the cosmos. And so we've looked at, over the course of those weeks, um, how to look at this Great Commission differently. And I want us to really emphasize how Jesus calls his disciples to accomplish this Great Commission. It's not just about personal conversions, as may have been um, considered that way in the past. But Jesus is calling his disciples to make other disciples, to welcome them into the church, and then to teach them everything that they have learned from him. Now, they have learned much from Jesus. That was like the ultimate seminary degree, right, to spend three years with Jesus. I will give up all of my degrees for three minutes with Jesus, let alone three years with him. Now, the disciples, they knew a lot about what Jesus had not only done for them, but what Jesus was calling them to do, calling them to be. And this discipleship is radically different than, again, just pure conversions. This is teaching people To not only come to faith, but then teaching them the scriptures about righteousness and holiness and justice and the kingdom of God, the authority of Jesus over all things. Communicating these things to others is what Jesus is calling them to do. But I also find it interesting. That's not all that Jesus says. Look at verse 19. Jesus also says to make disciples of all nations. Now, to me, as I read that, that seems incredibly unrealistic For Jesus to ask these 12 men, and by extension also us today, to accomplish such a feat. Uh, This is where I think 1 Timothy, our passage in in Timothy comes in, or 2 Timothy rather, um, where it comes in. Because what Paul, who's writing, 2 Timothy, writing to Timothy, it gives us a picture of how we go about accomplishing this huge commission that Jesus has given to his disciples. And just to give you a quick little context, Paul, who's writing to Timothy, largely sees Timothy as a spiritual son. And it's in this communication between Paul and Timothy that this huge commission is given a very concrete example of how it's actually accomplished. And he shows us how the gospel goes forth into the nations by presenting to us one idea. If there's anything we walk away with, catch this idea that Paul is communicating to Timothy the idea of generational disciple-making. Now, what do I mean by that? Take a look at how Paul understands the gospel to be going forth. All right, note this, particularly in verse 2. All right, let me reread it for you. And uh, the things you have heard me say, this is Paul speaking, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. And did you track what Paul was doing there? Do you see the generations that Paul lays out? So Paul, who is generation one, declares in the presence of many witnesses, generation two, who then go to reliable people, generation three, who will then be qualified to go teach others, who are generational who are generation four see in paul's mind there is a generational process that's taking place here remember he sees timothy much like a father sees a son and like a father he wants timothy to become capable of not just being a father but to also help produce other fathers i think about it this way i i have two children And I want my children to grow. I want them to grow up and be healthy, productive members of society. But I also want to raise my children in such a way that they are capable of then going to raise their own children. In Paul's mind, this generational idea is the way that the Great Commission is accomplished. The Great Commission is accomplished when when followers of Jesus help others become followers of Jesus who are then able to go and help others become followers of Jesus. And practically speaking, investing in someone like a father does to a son is the most effective strategy for accomplishing the Great Commission. If you don't believe me, consider something a a really dear friend of mine once said to me. Uh, He said, let's say you were to start a church and you were immediately... Out the gate, you had 1,000 people attending your church. And then year over year, God adds 1,000 people every year for 30 years. That would be amazing, right? At the end of 30 years, you'd have 30,000 people. Wow. But then he said, however, what if instead of starting that church, you decided to invest in the spiritual formation of just three people? but you were to do it in such a way that you were able to help them then go do the same with another three people each, who then could go and do that same thing with three people, and so on and so on. Over the course of that same 30 years, you would not have thousands of people. No, no, no. You'd have billions of people. Now, of course, that is a bit idealistic and grandiose, I realize, but there's something to it. That the Great Commission of Jesus to disciple the nations is possible when Christians approach it like Paul does here in 2 Timothy 2. And this means, Redeemer East Harlem, if you are a Christian here today, the Great Commission does not happen without you. It does not happen with all of God's people rallying around this idea of investing in other people so that they become fully developed followers of Jesus. Now, as a church, we certainly believe in the necessity of an organized group of people, of an organized body. The church, uh, as an institution, is an important part of a person's spiritual formation uh, with ministers and elders and services and preaching. All these things are important. However, we could have the greatest preaching The greatest services that the world has ever known. But if we don't, all of us together, help make disciples who make disciples, we've failed. Because nothing compares to individuals personally investing themselves in the work of others. In the discipling work of others. And something else I find really interesting about this passage in Matthew 28. Jesus tells them to go and make disciples of the nations. And usually when we think of discipleship, uh, if you've been around the church, it usually has to do with like discipling a Christian. But what's interesting about this passage is that he calls them to go into the world where they're the only Christians that are going out, that are there. And there's something to that. There's something to going to make disciples in such a way that evangelism or this idea of telling people about Jesus is very much intertwined with discipleship. And I draw this out Because when discipleship happens, there ought to be some kind of spiritual formation that's happening in a person's life even before they've had a personal conversion, solely because of the fact that there's some kind of uh, spiritual formation that's happening. People ought to have had some kind of encounter with Jesus simply by knowing a Christian. It's interesting to me that there really can be a discipleship happening even before someone comes to faith in Jesus. And so if you're a Christian, I want you to know that you and I, all of us, are called to be spiritually formed, to be growing as disciples of Jesus, and we are also called to journey with others so that we are seeing disciples made. And that is how the Great Commission is accomplished, ultimately. So that's the call of the disciple to be a disciple and also to make disciples. But Paul's next words here show us why this is actually a very challenging endeavor. I could imagine that some of us can imagine some of the reasons why this would be challenging to both be a disciple and a discipler. So let's look at the cost of the disciple. And let's specifically look at verse 3. So in verse 3, Paul, after he lays out this whole generational idea, he immediately follows it up with this statement He says, join me in suffering. Now, to me, that's not the greatest way, Uh, right after making a pitch for disciple-making and spiritual formation, uh, to say, listen, what I'm asking of you, it's going to really make you suffer. Um, If any of you are advertising people, you could maybe help Paul on how to pitch an idea. But why is disciple-making a call to suffer? Well, it's because... Being a disciple of Jesus, one who is being formed and helping others be formed, it's costly. Paul And Paul draws on three analogies to explain what the Christian life should look like, each of which could totally be a sermon unto itself. I will save you uh, long expositions on these, but let me give you the thrust of each one of these uh, little analogies that Paul gives us. So uh, to describe what a Christian life is like, verse 3 and 4, Paul describes it as being like a soldier. He says, No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. You know, the life of a soldier is one of great discipline and alertness. A soldier is singularly focused on accomplishing the mission. Set forth by his commanding officer. So it's like a soldier. Another example Paul gives is that it's also like being an athlete. There in verse five, he says, An athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. In other words, a successful athlete always obeys the rules. Obedience to the rules is not an option for the dedicated athlete. And then you have the final one there in verse 6 where he says that it's like being a farmer. I mean, what is the life of a farmer? It is a life of patience and diligence and even humility. It is hard work sometimes to yield uh, to, in order to see fruit yield and, because sometimes you don't see fruits come. It's often a thankless and invisible job. You know, we all know famous athletes and soldiers... Um, I'm wondering, do you know any famous farmers? Probably not. It's often a thankless, invisible job. And so what Paul is saying to his spiritual son, Timothy, to be a follower of Jesus is to be a singularly focused, dedicated, obedient, diligent, and faithful person to Jesus. Following Jesus is not a casual thing. It is an all-consuming thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he's thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, he says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. It is a big deal. It is an all-consuming thing to follow Jesus. And with regards to disciple-making and spiritual formation, the call is to walk with others as they grow in being singularly focused, dedicated, obedient, diligent, and faithful. I want to just stop there for a second because I don't think we can pass too quickly past this idea and the significance of it uh, because specifically the call to follow Jesus and the call to bring others along as well, again, really does require the totality of a person's life. I mean, verse 9, Paul is describing him, himself being in chains as a result of this work that he's doing, and he's warning Timothy to not be surprised If something were to then happen to him, Paul, again, sees himself as a father training up a son, and any good father makes clear to their son the potential suffering that is to come. Uh, A while back, I was um, walking around just the neighborhood near my apartment, um, and I was walking behind a, a black father and his son. And that'll be important uh, because as they're walking, they're talking to this woman, this other woman that's with them. And I hear the son say to this woman, uh, I want to be a lawyer. And the father then grabs his son and says, we're going to make that happen, son. And then he turns to the woman that's there with them. And he said, you know, I'm hard on him, but I'm hard on him because I want that for him. I want him to be that lawyer. But it won't be easy. I know too well what life is like for a young black man. And so I'm tough on him because the world is not going to be kind to him. I want him to be prepared. What was interesting is I'm just observing this, listening to this conversation, and it, it stuck with me. Uh, and it stuck with me, and it, it struck me for this reason, that a good father always makes clear to his son the hardship that he will potentially face and endure. And this black father knows the struggles of his black, that his black son will face as a young black man. And so, out of this love and affection that was clearly visible as, he, as his son buried his head in his dad's arms, he let him know this. He wants him to know the struggle. And now here, Paul's words, hear my words, that like a soldier, like an athlete, like a fo- farmer, following Jesus requires a complete reorientation of life, and it will be hard. There's nothing easy about following Jesus, and it will at times require suffering. And for the Christian, your call is to not only be on that journey, but to also bring others along with you on that journey, to care for them and walk with them the way a father walks and cares for a son. Now, maybe just be very practical with you for a second and let me just ask you two questions related to all of this first question presents to you is where are then the places that you are most formed and nourished like where are you being spiritually formed where is it that regularly the Spirit of God is able to form you into the likeness of Jesus and what is your commitment to that formation now, we believe that one of the primary ways that God uh, forms and shapes us is certainly through regular practices of being in his word, through the sa- through sacraments, and through prayer. Uh, of course, all of which we do here in our services every week. Uh, but if you've noticed in our services, uh, for some, maybe this, this, this intentional kind of liturgy that we go through each week, uh, maybe for some of you, uh, you've certainly been a part of it. Others, it might be new to you but it's not arbitrary. If you consider the different things that we do within a worship service, they're actually intended to help mimic what our regular rhythms of life should look like. We we take time in the very beginning to adore God, recognizing that God is calling us to adore and worship him. We spend time in confession before him. We are encouraged when we hear of the forgiveness that God brings. We praise him and we pray through the Psalms. We pray together and we bring to him the needs of our world and our nation and our church and our city. I mean, all of these are not rhythms or arbitrary. They ought to be rhythms for our lives every day. And so, as an encouragement to you, take the bulletin home. You know, if you need these good, healthy rhythms of how do I come before God regularly in a rhythm that is spiritually forming to me, take the bulletin home and use that as an opportunity to just be thinking through how I can be coming before God regularly to be spiritually formed. You know, another thing that we do that we believe is that this formation happens through community. And so one of the ways that we uh, attempt to do this is by our gathering on Tuesday night. It's the very reason why we gather on Tuesday night because it gives us an opportunity to continue this conversation about how we are spiritually formed, how we ought to be living our lives in response to what we hear. We pray together, and over time, We're shaped by these things. It's part of the spiritual formation. So again, I ask you, how are you regularly being formed and nourished? But then the second question, that has to do with being a disciple and how to become more and more of a spiritually formed disciple. But the second question I'd ask you is, are you being formed and shaped in such a way that now you are able to go and help others on that journey? Are you helping others in their own spiritual journey? Are there people that you are regularly investing in, whether they're Christians or not, regularly helping them on their spiritual journey? And that does not have to be complicated. You know, to do so is to do things like, are you praying for others? Are you showing them the love of Christ regularly? Are you engaging with them in spiritual conversations and what the most important things in their life might be? Are you communicating the hope that you might possess as a result of your own ongoing formation? Are there people that you've intentionally considered to be your son, so to speak, those that you desire to invest in, If you're a Christian, we all have people that we can be doing these kinds of things with. So, being a spiritually formed disciple, let me recap quickly, means that we are committed to learning and growing to give our whole lives to Jesus. But it also means that we are willing to help others do the same. And as we do this, it becomes a complete orientation, reorientation of our lives. But then, of course, that that brings us to just this final thought. You know, why would someone do that? I just just, unpacked a lot. I just asked a lot of myself and all of us here. And some might be thinking that this is why Christianity is crazy, that it's far too much for anybody to commit to. It's way too radical, this whole idea of reorienting your entire life around something and then asking other people to do the same. But here's the thing. Whether you are a Christian or not, everybody in this room has given themselves completely and fully to something. We all have. And whatever it is that we've given ourselves to, it often requires full dedication and maybe even suffering in order to achieve. So the question then is, well, then what does that thing ultimately offer you, right? What does that thing do for you? What has it given you? And what I want to do, lastly, for the next few moments, is just give you the Christian perspective on why giving ourselves fully to this call of being spiritually formed and also helping others be spiritually uh, formed is truly a joy, the joy of the disciple. Uh, consider Paul's train of thought here. So he's essentially said that as you are being spiritually formed as a disciple, you're also bringing others along so that they can be spiritually formed. It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. But in the midst of this, in verse 8, he says, "'Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of Eve, as preached in my gospel.'" Now that reminds me of some later thoughts of Paul in chapter 4, where he says this. Let me just read this for you in uh, chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. He says, For I am eagerly, I'm sorry, for I am already poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, There is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. I mean, what is it that made Paul's suffering worth it? Why did he pour himself out? Why did he fight the good fight like a soldier or finish the race like an athlete or keep the faith like a humble farmer? It was because he remembered the risen Jesus his king, his Lord, it was all worth it because as he says in chapter 4, he knows the extent to which this pleases his king. And the upshot of all of this is that Paul does all of it for Jesus' sake because he knows what Jesus has done for his sake. I mean, hear me, Jesus calls his followers, yes, to be singularly focused soldiers, obedient athletes, humble farmers, but why? Why? Why does he call his followers to do that? He calls them because like a singularly focused soldier, Jesus was committed unto death to accomplish the mission of saving his people. He was, uh, he was uh, committed to the complete destruction of sin and death. He accomplished that which his father had set out for him to do. Jesus, like an athlete obeying the rules. Jesus obeys the Father perfectly. And he does so on our behalf. He was perfectly obedient for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, like a farmer, he humbled himself by going to the cross that we might see new life birthed from death and from his resurrection. So not only was Jesus, this faithful servant of the Lord. But the other thing that strikes me is that Jesus also embodied what it meant to now be sent. You know, God is so serious about this idea of generational discipleship that he gave us the perfect example of what it means by literally sending his son. He came for us. He came for us. And the joy of the disciple is being spiritually formed so that we can be with Jesus, that we might be like Jesus. And as a result, then giving ourselves completely and fully is not some obligation, but it's an endless joy. And when we participate in spiritually forming others, we are literally reflecting the posture of God the Father in how he sent his Son. And so as a congregation, as a Young congregation four weeks into being a church I pray that we take very seriously our own spiritual formation that we seek to orient our entire lives around the call of Jesus to be his follower but that we also take very seriously that we are called to also journey with others the Great Commission does not happen without all of us engaging our call to not only be a disciple, but to also disciple others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you sent your son, that he has come and he has accomplished everything that was necessary, that he truly was uh, like that soldier, like that athlete, like that farmer, uh, and he was all of those things for us on our behalf. And God, as we have now, uh, for those that have put our faith in Jesus, as now we as we are Your own, and as now uh, we are being spiritually formed by the work of Your Spirit, uh, God, I pray that You would make us more like Jesus, but that You would also help us to bring others along, to do what is necessary to see others grow in their relationship with Jesus as well. And we trust that as we do this together, as we do this as a church community, uh, that You will accomplish Your great mission which is to seek and save the lost, uh, that people might come to know you in a real life-changing kind of way. Would you give us the privilege of seeing that happen? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.